Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas, talk a little bit of some really interesting stuff going on in the UK that, yes, it's a little different, but there's some universal principles to apply there. We've got Jack Rowlett back with us, Young Voices contributor. He's a writer and commentator coming to us from Nottingham, England, of Robin Hood fame. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. It's good to be here. Looking so forward to discussing it, Britain. Yeah, I am too. So we, we you got a mess with the NHS National Health System going over there right now. Everything from ambulance response times, you got nurses strikes, now you've got a doctor shortage. This looks like a real big hot mess on the outside, but the real problem with this is the more you look at it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of solutions coming anytime soon on some of these issues. Yeah, I mean it's it's top of the political agenda here at the moment. And something something that's interesting is in this country we sort of look down our noses at America. And you guys is having you don't have universal health care and you know your healthcare outcomes are determined often by whether you've got a job how much money you have and we sort of get this we have this real sense of superiority in britain that we have this free at the point of use health care and everybody has access to it but actually now increasingly because of the state of the healthcare system i don't think we can really claim to be a country with universal health care anymore you know, I've, I've been in um, accident and emergency in Nottingham recently, and you've got people on beds in corridors, you've got people sleeping on the floors, you've got, you know, wait times of days now, in some cases, for accident and emergency care. Uh, and we've got, you know, we've got, uh, I think it's about 500 people a week currently dying purely because of the extended wait times for accessing care. And it, in terms of the solutions, I think we've we've got, there are a couple of problems here one of which is that it sort of has to get worse before it gets better and so i think that's the that's the dynamic of us feeling like it we can't really make it better like there's no solutions to the problem because actually there's nothing that's going to make it better tomorrow but there are a number of things that we can do reasonably quickly so one thing that's being talked about a lot over here is that two that we could um allow pharmacies to prescribe medication because they're not allowed to do that so for kind of less serious illnesses you would be able to go to your pharmacy rather than your doctor and get a prescription for some medication from them and that's sort of we've got a big problem with um wait times for doctor's appointments as well so that would help out with that as well um and then other solutions like the fact that the, the nhs model really focuses on acute care and it doesn't focus enough on making sure people are fit and healthy in general and so preventative care and so there's a, a lot of talk about how we need to we really need to transition to focusing on that sort of care as well, um, because then you avoid this sort of crisis happening in the first place if you have a fitter, healthier population. Yeah. Jack Rowlett joining us. Let's let's have the grown folk talk about this, though, is because too much when you're talking policy wise, like when we're talking on a show like this or we're writing a piece, some of our friends use universal health care or government health care, single payer, whatever terminology you want to use. Almost like it's a magic word, like, oh, we'll just have universal health care and it fixes everything. Whatever system you're advocating for, if it's not well administered, it really doesn't matter because you're still going to have problems with it. And that's where we this thing kind of falls apart is like, look, it's it's not a magical incantation. If you're going to have universal health care, there are trade offs to it. You're going to pay much higher taxes. You're going to have limited options on your health care. You're going to have those trade offs, but it is free and everybody gets it. We just don't want to have those full discussions past the buzzword sometimes. Like you just said, you've said it for so long. Well, we have universal health care. You don't. This is the risk of it in inertia. If you don't administer it, it really doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, I mean, if it's free but terrible, then there's not much point in having it at all. Um, and, and ultimately, somebody does have to pay. And that's, uh, that's the sort of difference is, is ultimately care in America is rations 
just as it is here. It's just here it's being rationed at random in a healthcare system that's sort of crumbling all around us, whereas in America it's more rationed on the base of your income or your job, right? Um, and and here there is a real we call, we often say in the UK that the NHS is the closest thing we have to a national religion like that's the sort of cult like status it has in the national psyche and for a long time any talk of reforming it at all immediately leads to suggestions that you want to replace it with an American style system and that you want to privatize it and you're going to sell off the NHS to private American pharmaceutical and and medical companies and so there are all these roadblocks to reform and and it's a lot of it is driven by the politicians because as soon as you have one party say okay well the NHS is a mess we need to reform it let's do a b and c the other parties come along and say ah no you want to privatize the NHS they're going to destroy it if you want to save the NHS, you've got to vote for us at the next election. And so nothing ever changes. But I think right now, the scale of it is is just unimaginable. I don't think people really imagine that we'd reach a point in this country where you are ringing 999 for an ambulance and potentially it just doesn't come and you, you end up dying in your home or your loved one ends up dying. And so I think now there is there is something of a changing attitude and people are acknowledging that maybe we do need a change to our healthcare system and that maybe even I, I think uh, our attachment to universal healthcare is resolute but that maybe this model of universal healthcare just doesn't work with the aging population we have jack rowlett joining us see this is the problem in healthcare in america is the older you get the more expensive you get we're talking about the business side of it now the older you get the more expensive you get and we have an insurance heavy model for good bad or indifferent so you know the young people have to pay into it although they're not using as many services broadly speaking to take care of the older people that's the problem you already mentioned it for folks that aren't familiar with the national health system it was built it's a post-world war ii thing heavily that's kind of the model it was designed for that britain because that was the britain that existed then the uk more broadly that's not the uk that exists now there is the talk that it didn't keep up to the times as it was supposed to that focused on acute care, not focused on things like preventative care or long-term care or even palliative care for the elderly. That's where you start getting into the nuts and bolts medical policy problems here. And that's where a lot of the debate is, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it's actually, it's been flawed since the start because yeah, you mentioned it's a, it's a post-war model of healthcare. It's absolutely right. It was started in the late 1940s, but actually the expectation of the government that brought it in was you would cut healthcare spending in the medium and long run as a result of bringing in universal healthcare because you'd treat people and so their conditions wouldn't get worse. But actually what happened was the sheer scale of demand meant that actually healthcare spending has just risen inexorably since then. And we've reached a tipping point now because of those sort of demographic issues we've got so many people sort of over the age of 60 that and not enough young people paying taxes in and we and we've also you know we're rolling up the drawbridge and not letting as many immigrants into britain anymore so that tax base is shrinking and so demand on the nhs is just increasing inexorably as that tax base shrinks and no one has thus far been willing to reckon with the with this with this difficult problem and actually explain to the public well okay you've got the options of either we carry out a massive reform either we everyone just goes private and poor people no longer have access to health care or people pay a lot more in taxation and these these um reforms and ideas aren't always popular here because it's really hard to reform the nhs because of its place in the national psyche um but actually it's it's so urgent now it's so urgent you've got you know toddlers sleeping on floors in accident and emergency departments you've got pensioners waiting four days pensioners with suspected heart attacks you know waiting days for healthcare, dying on trolleys you know people in car parks here receiving care in car parks because there's no capacity inside the actual hospitals themselves we just need to do something about it and, and reckon with the difficult truth joining us on herd tell I, when we have these conversations I always I always put my hands up and i was like okay i'll have the universal health care versus whatever debate with anybody you want to i want to tell everybody two things about me though i lived overseas i lived in germany i've been a german patient in the hospital i've had a german ambulance pick me up i know how that the that kind of model the european model works 
intimately. I've been there. I'm also a VA health patient, Veterans Affairs patient, which is the government-run healthcare system in America. So I know the good, bad, and difference of all of this. If you live in Germany, you get excellent health care. But what we would call the middle class in America, you're also paying in the 40 percentile of taxes plus a 19 percent VAC tax to pay for all that. If you pitched America on 60 percent taxes, they would tar and feather you and run you out of town. You just mentioned it with the UK. There's no model of reform for the NHS that isn't involving raising taxes, but you've got a population problem at the same time. That's a math problem that has got to be solved if you're going to actually fix the NHS, right? And that brings in immigration. It brings in politics. It brings in the culture war stuff. That's an ugly ball to try to unwind. But the result of that is, is an NHS where it's really hurting people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing people don't um, seem to often grasp about Britain is actually our healthcare system. It, it's not a straight European model. It's it is it's free at the point of use and it's it's uh, it's universal. So. I think in America, you often associate that with, with Europe, but actually it's quite different to how the rest of Europe works. We have, we don't have any real insurance model at all, whereas countries like Germany and the Netherlands, for example, they do, it's a much more heavily regulated insurance model than you have in America, but there is a sort of social insurance system there. And so we, in a sense, we have the worst of all worlds with our healthcare system because it's massive and bureaucratic and run by the state. And you have all the problems that go along with that, but also the quality of care and provision of care is really bad as well. So it's 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 a massive problem, and the dem the demographics that you you've just mentioned. I mean, that is the biggest thing now. And and actually, it does it does go broader than the NHS. You mentioned immigration and the cultural stuff and everything. There there is a real there is a real generational divide here in the UK now. And actually, part of improving public services. So the NHS, education, all those things. Part of that is making tough choices about, um, you know, letting more immigrants in and encouraging people to have more children um, and making policy more pro-family, because that's how you improve, increase the size of the tax base in the short and medium term. And that's how you fund good public services. And what's most interesting is that the, the very people who rely most on the National Health Service, the sort of over 60s, over 65s, those people are the most unwilling to confront those difficult choices and make Britain a more pro-family country and make Britain a more pro-immigrant country. And it's it's a cycle of despair. Yeah, Jack Rowlett, we have the same problem here with what we call the boomer generation. They, <laughs> But we'll get into that some other time. Let's talk about that right there, though, because this is where this starts to cross streams into some other areas of policy. That young cohort, let's just say 18 to 25, post-school, post-university, you know, that group, we're seeing some very troubling data post-COVID coming out of the UK. They're having trouble getting jobs and they're tr getting, having trouble getting housing. You talked about the immigration problem. Look, it's an either-or formula. You either have a high birth rate or you got to have immigrants if you're going to have an economy. You got to have one or the other. The people you do have can't get work and can't get housing to start their own lives and start their own, you know, housing is equity, housing is wealth. These these are building blocks to your economy that we don't talk about as much as we do like the unemployment rate. This is really troubling stuff for the UK, though, because the building blocks of the future economy for the next generation don't look real good right now. No, they, they look terrible. And, it, and if I look at people my age who are looking to get on in life, you know, smart people my age, all of them are looking at leaving Britain because they don't think that there are opportunities here and they don't think the country is serious about improving things. Housing is a real barrier housing the state of housing in the uk right now is a disaster on so many levels you have the level that it's really hard to buy for first-time buyers the cost of housing relative to average wages is it's it's about nine and a half times higher the average house price compared to the average annual wage and in london it's something like 20 times higher it's it's ridiculous there and it, if you go back to the 1970s it was about three times the average annual wage so objectively in real terms the cost of housing has gotten so much more expensive over the past half century or so and then also that's now spilling over into the rental sector so for, for a long time you've had a situation where younger people you know people in their 20s and 30s have struggled to afford housing but there was plenty of rented accommodation that they could find and stay in and that's not it's not desirable for people to be relying on that forever but actually at least you had somewhere you could go now we're in a situation where there's such a dire shortage of rented accommodation in lots of our cities 
particularly university cities we have students coming into cities and there's you know waiting lists for accommodation there's queues all the way around the block to look around apartments you have situations where landlords are, are actually renting apartments to the highest bidder as in the person who can pay the most rent per month rather than having a predetermined set amount and when you actually get into this accommodation a lot of it is really run down it's really bad it's damp it's moldy it's cold and so the, the the quality of housing is really low and because there's such a shortage it means although we have laws around kind of minimum provisions that you have to have for accommodation in the uk actually your power as a renter is minimal because you can go to your landlord and complain about something and the landlord's response will often be well okay move out then but you know you can't go anywhere else because there's nowhere else in your price range you see your friends who are having to move back in with their parents because they can't even rent somewhere. Not that they can't even buy somewhere, they can't even rent somewhere. That's how bad it's gotten. And then that spills over into this intergenerational problem in that you have boomers here who own all the property, essentially, and they block new property from being built, particularly in the places we most need it. And so, again, that cycle of despair, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. That leads to less children being born. It leads to lower productivity. It leads to uh, lower tax take. And that makes public services worse and it makes Britain a less dynamic and versatile economy. Jack Rowland joining us. The reason I bring that up is because you said Britain is under a generational change. Generational change comes whether you want it to or not, right? There's no stopping it. It's the, that's the tide of time when it comes to people. Generational change can be good or it can be bad. We're looking at these economic problems. We're looking at the NHS problems. We're looking at the political upheaval in parliament right now in the UK. It doesn't look like this is going to be good generational change if you don't solve some of these problems. You have an or, a urban and rural problem. You know, the highest unemployment for the youth in, is in the West Midlands, the Birmingham, you know, the old industrial mm -hmm. sectors. It seems like there needs to be some pretty bold action here to cut off this whole generation going in a bad generational change instead of good generational change. But is there any movement to try to actually do anything about it? There's lots of grassroots campaigns, but at the top of politics, nothing is changing. I mean, our government has just made it harder, in effect, to build housing by abolishing housing targets um, that were placed on local authorities here, which means there's even less incentive for local councils here to build housing than there was before. And we already weren't building enough. Um, taxes here have been risen to the, uh, the height. They're now at the highest level they've been since the Second World War. And if you look at where the tax burden falls, it's on working people and working young people and not on older people. And so money is increasingly being given out to older people in the form of benefits from the state. Um, and it's money from younger people that's funding that, except that um, the kind of the usual dynamics of history have been reversed. If you go back sort of 40 years, older people were tended to be in poverty at a much higher rate than the working age population. Now it's reversed. We have more than a third of pensioners here are millionaires. And the percentage of pensioners, retirees in poverty is considerably lower than the working age population now. And so things are being constantly rigged in their favor. We have um, here uh, what we're dubbing the cost of living crisis now because the cost of energy is so high. And one of the things that the government's doing to help out with that is they're giving out payments direct to households, um, like a sort of amount taken off the bill of your energy. And yet more money just goes to pensioners for that handout than anyone else. And it's not means tested at all, whether you're a rich pensioner or a poor pensioner, if you're old, you get a big handout from the state to help you with your energy. If you're a young person on a zero hours contract with a load of college debt who's struggling to pay their soaring rent, you get a lot less. And so the gov and this, the problem for the government is their voter base is almost entirely the over 65s now. So there's no political impetus for them to make things better for younger working age people. Yeah, Jack Rowland, th that's a universal problem. Every country has that problem. The older people are going to have more political power because they got more money, more assets, whatever. 
that's not new. However, you do have one advantage in England where you have a parliamentary system with outside some very specific judicial review. What parliament says goes, you know, you don't have a written constitution. So whatever parliament does, that goes. You could have some pretty sweeping change here if there was a political appetite for it. How much has the chaos of the last year or so really crippled people's belief in parliament? And I'm not just talking labor versus the Tories and that sort of stuff, just the chaos in general. That's where it really starts kind of hurting is because where you would look to parliament's like, okay, it's time to do some sweeping change here. And you're changing prime ministers every five minutes and you're just kind of sitting around waiting for the labor to get their turn. And you're probably not real super hyped that the labor's going to do a whole lot. That's a big problem of faith in government you've got when you really, really need them to be able to steady the ship, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the system's totally breaking down now. And if you look historically, when one party gets tired, there's tended to be a politician from the other party who is a kind of radical, dynamic leader who people can get excited about and get behind. And actually, if you talk to people in the UK now, no one feels excited about about any of them. You know, they're, they're all terrible they were all or not or not terrible necessarily but there's there's just a kind of apathy right you either hate politics or you just feel apathetic towards it here began and people look towards parliament and they look at we've had scandals um involving expenses we've had scandals involving drugs recently we've had scandals involving sexual harassment in westminster and people just look at them as sort of reflecting the worst of britain rather than the best of britain and so yeah i think people's faith in our politicians to actually get us out of this rut uh is very low right now yeah i had a labor friend uh quip to me like if all due respect to keir starmer he said, you know, if we had a labor leader worth anything, he'd be king instead of Charles after three, you know, conservative prime ministers having to resign in disgrace. Just, you know, it's stuff like that. Like nobody seems to be able to even capitalize on the other side, not being able to do anything. That's kind of I'm an outside observer. You tell me you're there. But when you can't take advantage of your political opponents, absolutely shooting themselves in the foot. I don't inspire a whole lot of confidence to me. I'm not picking a side. I'm just saying it looks bad. It looks chaotic. And it looks like even when this, you know, whenever you do have a general election this year, this fall, whenever that eventually happens, if Labor takes over, I don't really see anything really changing. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be stated that Labor are well ahead in the polls here at the moment. And Keir Starmer, for an opposition leader, is pretty popular. But there's that lack of enthusiasm. People are just kind of trundling along saying, oh, well, it's time for a change now. Conservatives have been really bad. Labour can't be any worse. There's there's no enthusiasm whatsoever. Um, but I think I think one interesting dynamic as well is that actually the last time Labour came into power, they did so on the back of a really strong economy. And so when they came in, there was lots of money to throw around on public services. There was lots of money to sort of improve things for um, lower earners, lots of money to spend on tax credits, child benefit, all these sorts of things. When Labour inevitably, I think, win the next general election, whenever that is, and it has to be before January 2025, we're going to have just come out of a quite long and deep, uh, quite long um, and but relatively shallow recession on the back of a decade of really stagnant economic growth. And so there's, there's just not going to be money to change anything. I think we're looking at a wasted decade for Britain, really. Now, in the 2010s, it was really cheap to borrow and we chose to cut capital uh, spending. We chose not to build more housing. We chose not to confront climate change. We chose not to confront our generational crisis and the pressure that that puts on public services. And now we're in the next decade, a decade of high inflation, of higher interest rates, of real downward pressure on growth. And we're, we're sort of left with very few options, but to sort of try and push forward and make things better in the 2030s. It really feels like there's not there's no real change that you could make really soon that would improve things because there's there's no money and there's so many structural problems in the UK now. That sounds bleak for uh, those of us. Look, we got our own best in America. I'm not going to pretend like we don't, especially with what's going on in Congress right now. And we're in a presidential election cycle for 2024 ourselves. So we will share some some guffaws if you want to send them our way, to be fair. What does and doesn't break through media, especially in or uh, across the pond here? 
What's a few things for us, maybe the international audience, the American audience, or even the British audience, what should we be watching for beyond the headlines, beyond just PMQs, beyond just the nurses' strikes and the rail strikes? What's a couple things we should be watching for as this year starts to unfold? Is it maybe having the, the election early? Is it maybe a new leader rising up through the ranks? What are you watching for that we should be watching in the headlines underneath all the noise? I think what's really interesting at the moment is, is Brexit, which has been out of the news for a couple of years now since we left the European Union. But what's really interesting now is people are turning against it here. We sort of have nearly 60% of the population saying that it was a mistake to leave the European Union and only around a quarter of the population saying that they think Brexit's going great. And we know from sort of trade figures that we're one of the only countries, uh, one of the only major economies where our levels of international trade haven't recovered from before the pandemic. And it's been long enough since we came out of COVID lockdowns now that we can sort of say that that, that might have something to do with Brexit. We've got problems at the borders. We've got problems in Northern Ireland. You know, the Northern Irish protocol still isn't sorted out. And I think for a, for a long time, the kind of Brexit wars was like an aspect of the culture wars and it was a real 50-50 split. Now it feels like people are decisively turning away from Brexit or certainly this hard detached view of Brexit and are actually more in favour of a closer relationship with Europe. And I think that will have an interesting effect on politics because the Conservatives have massively tied themselves to the, the strongest, hardest form of Brexit possible. But Labour have also kind of become a party of Brexit as well since the last general election. They of, you know, they're saying, well, we're not going to join the EU. We just want to make Brexit work. We don't want to get that much closer to Europe. And so I think that's the interesting dynamic is what effect will that have on British politics as that stops being um, as the kind of the 50-50 divide between Remainers and Leavers here stops being a thing. And instead, people increasingly are not necessarily wanting to rejoin the EU, but are really dissatisfied with how Brexit has turned out. Yeah, Jack Harlow joining us. Let's be adults here, though. That sentiment and undoing Brexit after the decade of getting to Brexit, that's two very different things. And plus, that's not up to just the UK anymore. We saw what the EU did since Britain and the UK has left. They're not exactly going to gift wrap a basket full of provisions for you to come back either. That could be even worse of a situation. There's a lot of mess there if they ever decide to try to go back down that hallway again. I wonder how much taste there would be for that if they actually tried to do it. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the big barriers is that, I, I mean, if I were the EU, I wouldn't really want us back at this point. And and I don't I don't think there's much suggestion that we'd go in to Europe. Well, they again, want you but... back, but they're going to want you on your knees crawling back. Yeah, well... And economically, everything's going to be 70-30 their way, which I'm not sure that really fixes anything for the UK. I'm just being real about it. Like, mm. if I was them, I'd do it too. It's like, sure, we'll have you back, but everything's going to be in our favor this time. Yeah, and they'd want us to join the Euro and, and possibly Schengen as well. So it would be, we would lose a lot of the advantages we had last time we remembered the EU. But what I think could happen is there could be a move towards sort of a, a form of associate membership. So joining, trying to join the single market. So rather than going back into the EU, just having a closer relationship with Europe's institutions. Again, the terms that Europe might demand from us if we tried to do that might be too high a price to pay. But I think there is an increasing sort of understanding in Britain that maybe Brexit, either Brexit was a mistake or we've just messed Brexit up really badly. I think that's increasingly becoming the consensus here. Yeah. Interesting times we live in, my friend, for our friends across the pond, Jack Rowlett. One of our great Young Voices contributors. He's a writer and commentary. He's all over the place. Great talking to you. Before we get you back again, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on, and how they can follow you until we talk to you again on Hertel, my friend. So you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore Nostalgic. And you can find all my articles there, all my latest writing, latest appearances on British television and radio as well. And keep up to date with my thoughts on British and global politics. Yep. There's a lot of stuff on housing, which is really important stuff to pay attention to, because I know we all got sick of infrastructure, but that's the infrastructure stuff that matters. Pay attention to it. Jack Rowlett, thank you so much for the time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, hadn't seen him in a bit, but he's a good friend of ours. Roy, your boy Roy on the Twitter. We just call him Roy because that would be weird in real life. Roy, how are you, my friend? Good to see you again. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a good new year so far. Yeah, and it's <laughs> no shortage of lines going on, but I want to talk to you about a little energy policy because something really big happened in the last few days that got very little coverage because we got the Harry book and the madness in Congress and whatever else everybody else is talking about these days. And I think there was a football game this week. Something really important happened though. The news came out of Europe about their energy use where it comes to Russia and where it comes to their efforts to kind of wean themselves off Russian energy, really big, important stuff. And it just didn't get the headlines, but it really ought to have. Right. Yeah. So um, this week, the uh, the United States became, um, overtook Russia as the chief uh, energy supplier to Europe, um, which is huge, um, especially considering that the Russians provided, I think, a quarter of um, Europe's energy for natural gas, oil, and um, other distillates. Yeah, and the important change here is the movement of LNG, liquefied natural gas. This has been the game changer. Now, this is an expensive way to move it. But it's also a very fast and efficient way to move it. Once you have that expensive infrastructure in place, that's really been the game changer here because they were their goals themselves were like 10, 15 percent this year. It looks like they're going to hit 25 percent this year on some estimates. That's game changing when it comes to the geopolitical, but also the economic. They got a little bit of a break because the European winter looks like it's going to be a little more mild than they thought it was. So that's helping. The prices are coming down a little bit. But that infrastructure, it's expensive, but once it's in place, boy, they've been able to turn this around really, really fast. No, you're right. The uh, And the Norwegians have really stepped up in um, supplying their own supplies of uh, natural gas, uh, oil, and other distillates through three main pipelines that go towards Germany. Um, and the LNG plants, uh, they're extremely expensive, extremely um, costly to maintain. But once you actually establish them, um, these ships that um, leave the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, Louisiana um, can deliver massive amounts of energy to Europe. And the Germans sure need it because uh, they've shut down all their nuclear plants and they're trying to fire up old coal-fired plants to uh, stay warm. But thank God the winter isn't too bad over in Europe. Yeah, it looks like it. Roy joining us. That brings us to where I want to talk about us. We have some really good LNG facilities, Elba Island and Savannah, Freeport down in Texas, Louisiana. We should have at least a half dozen more than what we have if we would have had a little vision back about 10, 15 years ago, right? right? This is an argument for infrastructure and energy, not just chasing gas prices. I know you wrote about crude oil prices. We'll talk about that in a second. That's the stuff that gets the headlines, right? Things like oil refineries, things like LNG plants, the cutting edge of this kind of technology that we've known about for a while, but we really haven't been building the way we should. Imagine what we could have been doing with Europe if we had a little bit of vision and had more East Coast or Gulf Coast LNG plants. When this came up, we really could have been doing some business here. 
Right. No, the the last uh, the newest refinery in the United States was built in 1976. Um, obviously, I was not alive in 1976, but um, the sort of refinery crunch, the refinery capacity crunch has really hit home in the last two years. Um, the United States has lost about 1.1 million barrels per day capacity in a little less than two years, uh, mostly due to the pandemic, but also due to the sort of um, government interference in the oil and gas sector. And a lot of these refineries are just bis- are just ordinary businesses. They need to I mean, balance their books, look at the future and see where they can make some money. Uh, but unfortunately, there is a, um, a really uh, the East Coast's largest refinery in Philadelphia uh, shut down due to a, um, an accident that happened. Um, and the company just looked at their books and said it would be prohibitively more expensive to um, repair the plant and continue production than just to shut it down. Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. This brings us to what you were writing about, about crude oil prices. Just let's keep this on kind of a basic level. Explain it to me so even I can understand it, though. Crude oil prices affects way more than just gasoline. And those are two different things, and people sometimes mix them up. This involves a lot of things. You wrote about it. Heating oil. Look, we had kerosene heaters when I was younger uh, because we still had a split. We had a split use stove because they were still (laughs) from back in the day. We didn't burn coal anymore, but it still had the coal burner on it. So we used kerosene heaters instead. A A lot of folks, especially in the Northeast, still use kerosene, jet fuel. Um, other byproducts, crude oil affects a whole lot more stuff. So when we're not refining as much as we could and we haven't kept up with refineries as much as we could, this puts us susceptible to these giant swings in the crude oil prices. It affects a lot of things in the economy besides just that number that hits the headlines. No, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, the kerosene, um, kerosene's use as a source of heat, um, not nationally 14% of Americans use kerosene as a heating source for their home. That's mostly concentrated in the Northeast, where obviously it's very, very cold. But you're right. Um, when you have a, a barrel of crude oil and it goes into the refinery, it can be made into all these different distillates, um, kerosene being a very highly refined, very pure um, distillate. And most folks that use kerosene live in older homes or live in mobile homes where the um, the heating oil tank or the, or the kerosene tank is located outside of the home, so where it's exposed to the elements. So kerosene actually has a much lower freezing point than diesel or heating oil, which is why it's so economical for these folks to heat their homes with in really cold places. Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. You talked about this when you wrote about it in National Review, too. The cost of this isn't just the price of kerosene, which is huge now. I remember when kerosene was cheaper than gasoline way back in the day when we were using it. You know, you're talking $6 a gallon for kerosene right now. The problem is that's not the only price we're paying. Places like Massachusetts, you deal with it. Maine, which you're very familiar with, places where it gets really cold in the wintertime. Now, things like the omnibus bill and things like this, we're having to put massive outlays in heating assistance. This is costing millions and millions of dollars on top of the actual cost of the fuel. We're making this more expensive than it really needs to be. And I hate to loop back to where we started, but things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. This is why that infrastructure is a big deal. This is why how we negotiate with other countries, how we do it. It all runs into we end up paying more, not only at the pump for this stuff, but in subsidies to help people afford it. Right. And um, this it was it's sort of a, a perfect storm of of incidents that led to this. The, um, the you'll remember the moratorium that was placed on um, drilling permits uh, back in the summer. Now, normally, most people would think that would have nothing to do with heating oil prices or kerosene prices in the winter. But during that time of the summer is when wholesalers and distributors purchase in bulk heating oil, kerosene to prepare for the winter when prices are low, when you and I aren't heating our homes in the middle of the summer, right? So because they put out that moratorium and the prices shot up, a lot of these wholesalers and retailers waited to purchase, to purchase their supplies, hoping that the price would go down. And because we're coming out of this pandemic and everybody's hopping on planes now, the airline industry which also is one of the main um, consumers of kerosene. Um, Some refineries use the acronym uh, SKF for superior kerosene fuel. Um, Jet fuel and kerosene are by and large the same fuel. So now you have a massive demand for the airline industry to fuel their planes, but you also have this um, shortage where wholesalers and retailers are now having to buy kerosene even more now that they've waited and the price still hasn't gone down, so you have these shortages.
Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. Let's talk about the other side of this because that's that's the political and the economic side of it. There's also the political and environmental side of this. Here's something I don't think it's talked about enough on this. I'm I'm sensitive to people that have environmental concerns about refining oil. It's a messy look. I used to work and live in the Huntington Ashland area, the Catlettsburg refinery. I drove by it all the time. It is a dirty business. There's not a super clean way to do it. However, like you just said, the last refineries we built was in the 70s. Not only the green technology, but the refining technology has gone down the road 40, 50 years. We have new technology to do a better, cleaner in those bridges before we get to that bright new future that always seems over the horizon, right? That's part of this that doesn't get talked about is we're not going to build a 1970s refinery. We're going to build a 2020 refinery or 2030 refinery probably with by the time you do the lead time and stuff. Should we be discussing it that way? Is like, look, technology isn't stagnant, not just in the green stuff. The way we use fossil fuels is also improving incrementally. Those two things need to bridge each other. And I don't think we talk about it correctly in that way. No, you're absolutely right. And we have gotten to the point where a single barrel, 42 gallons of oil, of unrefined oil can go into a refinery and 44 gallons of different distillates can be produced. So we actually can produce more from less. Um, so you're absolutely right. The 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 notion that refining is still stuck in this like sort of 1970s, very environmentally um, impactful state is is just misguided. Um, and we've seen from these price hikes that it's mostly the folks, the low income folks, the folks that are living in in mobile homes, in older homes, folks that are on um, Social Security fixed income that are really feeling the, pr the pinch from these prices. Yeah, Roy Matthews, let's talk about some other low income folks. I went and looked it up. I kind of knew it, but I want to make sure natural gas production, OK, which is a lot cleaner than coal mining and a lot cleaner than oil refinery, although there is environmental impacts and needs to be regulated. And we all understand that. Look, I'm sensitive to stuff. I'm from West Virginia. I've seen firsthand what strip mining does. I've seen what clear cut logging does. There's a big patch of where I hunted growing up right beside where I grew up, where they stripped it for development and found out they couldn't drill down far enough to put in septic. So it's set barren for 20 years. And it ticks me off every time I go to my mom and dad's house. I hate that part of it. However, we can reasonably use these resources. Look at this list of natural gas production. I'm talking about low income. Farming. Biggest natural gas field in America is Marcellus Shade. That's Pennsylvania, West Virginia, the heart of Appalachian. You don't think they could use some economic developments? The next three, Louisiana and Texas. Fayetteville Shell's number five. That's Arkansas. I lived in Arkansas. I can tell you firsthand those folks could use some economic development, right? New Mexico and Colorado, the San Juan Basin. The Pinedale gas field in Wyoming. Wattenberg gas field in Colorado rounds out the top 10. Texas has four of these in the top 10. These are areas of the country that have a lot of land. There's a lot of room out there. We should be able to find a balance between the environmental concerns, which are valid, and the economics concerns. And these are all areas of the country that could probably use the economic development at the same time when you look at the list and where it's actually at. No, you're absolutely right. And the folks, uh, the counter argument to this folks will point to these um, smaller facilities that also refine different distillates um, that have been built in the last 10, 15 years. Well, those facilities are in the 10,000 barrels per day range. Most of them go up to mainly 20,000 barrels per day. For these refineries that we need, we need refineries that are capable of producing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day. Um, and when we have this shrink, this, this refinery shrinkage, um, that also impacts um, folks' ability to purchase the kerosene. Most wholesalers and retailers, I don't know if you've ever um, purchased um, heating oil or kerosene for your home, but most of these whole wholesalers and retailers, in order to make money, in order to keep their businesses afloat, they require a minimum uh, amount of minimum sale, so to speak. Um, and most of the minimum sale is around 100 gallons. And if kerosene is at six dollars a gallon that's the low end um you're paying six hundred dollars for a hundred gallons of kerosene and you know i talked to some older folks in in maine when i was still living there um for folks that are living on a fixed income in their 70s most of them are living on 1300 bucks a month that's more than half of your monthly income and you still gotta put gas in your car go see your grandkids get groceries get all these all these supplies so it it really starts to hurt the folks that um really can't afford um, most of these wild price spikes. 
Yeah, Roy Matthews. The other part of that too is they're guessing on the price fluctuations. So you can make or break your half a year's budget based on whether you guess right or guess wrong on when you buy a bulk order like that. That's a lot of people's reality, especially people on a fixed income. That's an excellent point. Roy Matthews. Let's let's bring this back around because um we all talk about energy independence in America. I understand yes, that's a thing, but it's also a little bit of a misnomer because it's not that we're going to shut ourselves off from the world energy independence and we're just going to be this bubble. I think sometimes people think that that's not what it is. It's that we're going to create more than what we send out and we're going to have enough to send out to be economically viable to the rest of the world. Like we just saw in Europe. Do we need to change our terminology and update it just a little bit here? Because look, it's a geopolitical issue. It's a world peace and war issue with Russia. Now it's like, we should be able to export gas to de to decrease the conflict in Europe because that's a lot of how Russia gets its money. Stuff like that. The old terminology doesn't seem like it perfectly fits that anymore. Should we change how we talk about this a little bit? I, I think we should. Most people, when they hear energy independence, they think of us pulling up the drawbridge, drawbridge, so to speak, and sort of hoarding all our energy for ourselves. That's not really the case, and that's not actually one of the main benefits of energy independence. Energy independence just means we export more energy than we import. We could, we sell more than we actually need. So we can fulfill our heating and energy needs here at home. But like you said, we can also sell and become a, um, and become a supplier to these countries that have had to purchase energy from, from the Chinese, from the Russians. Um, and we all know, as we all know, the Ru Russian oil and gas and Chinese oil and gas comes with strings attached. They are going to want something in return, whereas American oil and gas companies and American companies in general are just trying to make money. And so energy independence, I think, needs to be framed more in terms of that geopolitical issue, but also as a way to sort of provide for the folks at home, too. When we mo when most folks hear about import exports, they just think we're um, we're sort of supplying the needs of the rest of the world. If we focus more on how we can provide for folks at home while also bringing in that extra income from energy sales abroad, I think that would go over much better with folks that are really struggling right now just to heat their homes. Yeah, Roy Matthews. One last thing. Let's bring this to a practical level. I always like to bring it down to like how we talk on our social media and talk to each other. The price of a crude oil barrel doesn't really make sense to people right? Chasing the gas price on the billboard at the gas station, that's a lagging indicator that has a lot of complex things that go into it other than, you know, like a Memorial Day or something like that. That confuses people. What's an actual number or headline or indicator people should be watching when it comes to energy, when it comes to things like natural gas and crude oil prices, something practical they can watch because this stuff fluctuates so much. What's one thing they should pay attention to in the headlines to go, okay, that's something that I need to key on and pay attention to, do you think? So I would watch the travel, I would watch, focus on travel demand. I would also focus on the transportation sector because we all need these fuel, these fuels to transport our products. There's the transportation sector is going to take a lot of the diesel fuel, a lot of the gas. Um, and just like I mentioned, the airline industry is going to take a lot of kerosene. Focus on the trends in the transportation sector. Also focus on um, refinery capacity. It doesn't matter if we can rip all this oil and gas out of the ground if we can't produce it, if, or excuse me, if we can't refine it efficiently, um, you know, crude oil isn't gonna be put into your car, it needs to be refined. And the sort of bottleneck that we've created where we've lost refinery capacity, but oil and gas production has shot up, has created this sort of choke point in our supply chain. Um, so I would really focus on that if you really want to know what's coming down um, the pipe, so to speak, no pun intended. Um, but yeah, you'll just like you mentioned, you know, the sort of gas prices are sort of the end result of all these different competing sectors uh, and factors. Yeah, Roy Matthews, good stuff as always, buddy. Let folks know where they can keep up with you. You got a lot of things moving and shaking right in the moment. You're kind of between things, but let folks know how they can keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Right. So, um, like you said, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. That's uh, at your boy Ro underscore Roy uh, 98. Um, put most of my articles up there. And that's really the easiest place you can uh, you can find me and all my uh, all my South Carolina Gamecock football talk, too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll tolerate that because you're a friend. Uh, Roy <laughs> Matthews, always good talking, my friend. Enjoy the new place you just moved into. And we'll talk again real soon, my friend. 
All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.